Welcome to episode 12 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny, uh, both of us now from Betstamp. Johnny, what's going on this week? Hey, Rob. Uh, it's been a good week. We uh, a lot going on in the news in regards to you know some betting, some companies, um, you know NFL season posted uh, you know week one plays now available. We had the Christie auction for the CryptoPunks uh, and Betstamp now launched a, a web version. So it's a, it's a big big week. Uh, we're excited uh, to see what next week has. Yeah, it's been busy uh, for sure. There's a lot of stuff going on uh, crypto. Today specifically kind of took like a small nosedive from some news-related items. So it's been kind of crazy for me. Uh, But yeah, let's try to delve into as many of these topics as we can. Uh, In the latter half of the episode, we're going to bring on a guest. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at BetLikeHarout, H-A-R-O-U-T, professional sports better. So we'll pick his brain a little bit. Uh, Last week we had Abnormally Distributed on, which was a great interview and a lot of positive feedback. I really appreciate that from everyone uh, Harut goes about things in a different way, I would say, in terms of betters, uh, in t- terms of betting on sports. And we'd like to get as much of different perspectives as possible on this podcast because uh, I'm always adamant that there's no one single way to win. So we'll bring him on in the latter half. But uh, let's start with the NFL. Uh, week one lines and futures uh, are getting talked about quite heavily now because uh, the week one lines were pretty widely released today. And I know that I personally got a bunch of DMs already of like, who do you like in week one? Uh, The reality is I don't even look at the week one lines right now because um, limits are are fairly small across the board uh, for one. But um, this is just in general with the way that I, I bet on sports. I try not to look at things too far in advance if I have no intent of betting them because it just tilts me if like I really like a side and then it moves a couple points. Um, because I was never going to bet it at the low limits anyways, but, uh, I don't like seeing it move. So, um, for me, it's just, it, it, it's dependent on the sport, but in a lot of situations, I think people are really rushing to market early, which is fine. I mean, not everyone's bankroll is what my bankroll is. And I don't mean to say that in an arrogant way or anything like that. It's just reality. Some people are betting, you know, 20 bucks. They'll put a future in for 50 bucks or whatever. And that's totally okay to bet early. Uh, but for, for me, I mean, I'm kind of just avoiding things as much as possible. That even includes NFL win totals, uh, which to me, I have an edge on a lot of these win totals right now, but with limits being what they are, I don't think I want to tie up money until you know January of next year when they're going to be graded. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more there, Rob. I know I've uh, debated quite a few people on this matter. Um, Personally, I'll never place a season-long future bet that's not going to grade, you know, over the next couple of months. Sometimes get conflicting views. I think the the thing that people need to really just keen in on here is with that money being tied up, you have to think of what else you could spend it on, what else you can invest it in, um, what else you can use it on in terms of your your credit, available capital, bankroll, things like that. So when a week one line comes out, you know that that money is not going to grade until, you know, week one of the NFL season, which is in September. Um, when you're looking at this now, you really have to think that money is now tied up for a few months. Is it in an account that I might be low on credit in and I need to now stop betting other things that have edges and I can't now compound that thing around. So we've, we've had this discussion before. Um, but yeah, I, in terms of the future bets, like on the season win totals, 
I understand there's edges to be had there. In my opinion, this is one area where you can probably get, you know, four or five, six, up to maybe 10% edges. But after the fact that the great, the like, you know, the grading of these bets is not going to come until January, uh, it's tough for me to have like a total plus expected value position all in. Uh, and especially the way I'm kind of running things now, the way we run things where like, to be honest, it's a lot of, you know, cycling through different accounts. So it, it's tough for an account to even last a full year um, overall, let alone, you know, just having like, if, if I just had the futures bets in there, you know, obviously it'd last, but it's tough to, to keep doing it when you're cycling through different things. And it's not really worth it, you know, to have that there and to have the hassle. There's a ton of factors. I mean, it depends on where you're betting for one, how many accounts you have, um, whether you have a set bankroll or you can keep depositing money. Like I can give an example, but I, I had an NHL account shut down maybe three weeks ago that has a lot of plus EV futures in there right now. Now that account is gone. If I win one of those futures, I'm going to hassle the guy to pay me. I don't know if he will or if he'll still be around at that time. So I've placed bets into a PPH where I have no idea if I'm going to get that money or not, or whether he's going to come seeking me if those end up losing, which is probably the case. Like it seems very likely I'm getting free rolled right now. And it's obviously my own stupid mistake because I've done this before. Um, so I get that. But I, I will say like, I'm not in the same boat as you, Johnny, because I, I, I never say never. And uh, the reality for me is it depends on what my expected value is going to be. So uh, I'll give you an example, but the there were some NHL futures this year. Now, condensed season started in January, only you know five months, but there were some NHL futures that were so incredibly mispriced this season that I had to play them. Like it, it I'm talking 20% edges. Like I'm, I'm looking at my, my accounts right now, stuff like, will the Colorado Avalanche make the playoffs? Yes. Minus 400. That price should have been minus 4,000. Like a lot of these big, will the Ottawa Senators miss the playoffs? Yes. Minus 450. The, these were like incredibly bad prices where you, you know, you can calculate what your expected return on those is. And for me, my expected ROI on the futures that I placed was the highest I've ever seen in my life is like close to 40%. My actual ROI ended up being 36.2%. But, you know, I don't ever want to say never, I don't ever want to just make this blanket statement of I'll never do this because there's certainly some edges to be had. But, you know, NFL futures, NFL season win totals, I don't think you're finding too many edges that are of that same caliber. And now you're locking in your funds for a long period of time. There's so much that can happen between now and the start of the season, uh, especially if you're going to bet an over on an on an NFL win total. Injuries are only going to really work against you. Um, so for me, it's like I'm interested in what the numbers are, but I'm not tying up too much of uh, uh, too much liquidity into into NFL futures this season. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think in your case scenario. If the, my edges that I show on some of these totals are like around four to five percent, and that's not enough to overcome, uh, you know, the total, the hassle, like the all the credit being tied up, the waiting for the money, stuff like that. In your case, if you've got a, you know, like, let, let's just say you have a thirty percent edge, it's tough to earn thirty percent even churning in some accounts. Like you're going to be able to find a place to play that. So I agree with you there. Um, and to anybody also like looking to have fun, I think we, we, we don't really talk about this enough, but if you're looking to have fun, like we, we mentioned like a season win total or like a Stanley cup future is a great way to have fun. 
So like, you know what I mean? Go, go nuts for that. Just keep in mind, like it's likely not plus EV in the total scenario. And also keep in mind that it's different for everybody. So you have to really think about what your betting style is, what your goals are from this. And then from there, you'll be able to make a decision that works for you. Yeah, it's a good point that we, the, the recreational side of things be you know, ahead of or not ahead of, but instead of the way that we often look at things because we're not really betting recreationally for the most part. So that that is valid. And uh, for sure, there, there's there's entertainment value that comes along with betting for some people. And I totally get that. I'm just speaking from the perspective of how I'm trying to maximize my return. Um, I'm limited in what I can bet in different spots. Some accounts are big and I can bet a lot in there. And sure, I can tie up you know, if I have a hundred thousand dollar credit account, I can tie up fifty thousand in futures. But is really is that really the best investment of that credit? And a lot of times, it's not. So I think you just got to take all of this and try to weigh it as best as possible. And if if I was seeing NFL win totals that were way off, like for sure, I'm going to play them. And there's probably a couple that I will play this year because I think that there are significant edges on them. Uh, but for the most part, I wouldn't. You know. You have an edge on 15 different NFL win totals. I don't think it's necessarily the wisest to bet every single one of those. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are going to get caught up in that because of the excitement of the NFL in general. But um, there, are, there are other ways to to better use that credit or to use your money. Um, that's that. That's that. Okay. So another topic we wanted to get into was tracking in units. Um, we see this all over Twitter. We see this I, all like I'm we, we got to get out. into it. I'm going to call the, the the guy out that that drives me up a wall. If you ever heard this, somebody will play this for him. Um, he's getting exactly what he's seeking. But there's this one guy on Twitter at Brendan Future. I, I like to call him Brendan No Future personally because I can't stand this guy. So I'm looking for a derogatory way to change his Twitter handle around. But this guy just tweets the same stuff at the Betstamp account over and over. And it's in regards to unit tracking. You, you know, everyone has that like one friend that thinks they're right on everything. This is what I imagine this guy is like in real life. Like he's a subject matter expert in every single thing that he does when he's, I, I mean, I'll take a step back from what I was going to say, but he doesn't seem to be that intelligent of a person in terms of understanding the way that we track units on Betstamp. So this drives me up a wall in general. But I know people who are like, yeah, you know, I bet two units on every game. Two units, my average unit. Well, if you do that, your average unit's really one unit because you're just betting the same thing on every single game. And when you're tracking units in general, your unit size is what your average bet size ultimately come amounts to. I can say that I bet $500 a unit, but if 75% of my bets are $100 and you know only 10 of them are $500, then that's not a real reflection of what my unit size is. And for purposes of tracking, if you're tracking someone and you want to get down to what they are actually up in terms of units then you have to use what they're betting on average as their base unit. And I think that seems like common sense, but for this one guy, it seems like a, a, like he lacks the comprehension of being able to fully understand that. 
Well, a lot of a lot of people have asked on Twitter, and when whenever we do explain it, they seem to grasp it. Obviously, this guy just keeps harping on the fact that we're, we're tracking units incorrectly, and we don't know what we're doing. Um, basically, it's like what Rob says. The premise is this: if you're betting five units a game, and you every play you post is five units, then that you're just betting one unit a game. And I think it's not that hard to explain when it's said like that. Um, for example, if you bet one unit a game. And then on one play, it's your thousand unit max whale banger. And then you win that play. Like you're not really up 1000 units on the season, right? So this is why like when tracking your betting and when trying to determine, you know, how to improve and how to scale and things like that, units is really a metric that could basically be thrown out the window, right? The only things that are really important are your ROI, which is a, you know, a derivative of your total profit. And then some would argue, and I would I would argue that your closing line value is important as a future indicator of success. But overall, when tracking your own betting, your ROI is in theory, all you need. You need your ROI and your sample size. So for example, if somebody made five units on the season and they had 100,000 bets, that's not very good. Now, yes, they did make five units. Let's say betting 100 per, you made $500, you made five units, that's great. But if you made five units and you had 35 bets on the season, then that's significantly better than five units over you know 10,000 bets or 1,000 bets. So technically, by dividing your total profit by your total risk amount, you can see what your own hold is. And uh, hold is just another word for basically your ROI. So you can say, yeah, my ROI this year on NHL was 3%. My ROI on you know NBA props was 5.5%. This is a better metric for you to basically compare and judge how you're actually doing it. And this is a metric that will scale as you grow bigger as well. So uh, to anyone there who's tracking in units right now, it's all good. If you're keeping a consistent bet size, which you probably shouldn't be, but if you're keeping a consistent bet size and you want to track in units, it's all good. But as soon as you start betting different amounts on different things, which is how, you know, the betting game should be because you're not going to have the same edge on every single thing. There's going to be different limits or different things. Uh, you're going to want to convert all your tracking to ROI. If you do already track on BetStamp, this is done for you and it's going to calculate your ROI and your closing value. Um, and in that web tool that I just mentioned, there's an incredible analysis tool where you can track all this stuff. But outside of the plug, I think uh, we really wanted to, you know, pound this home about the units tracking and how you know, it isn't really uh, as it seems like it's a, a thing of the past. And, and I think it should, in theory, be eliminated from sports betting, especially within like the media on Twitter and, and as a tracking method. I, I've always I don't want to say I've always hated it. That's not true because I actually used to track based off units when I was posting picks publicly to my Twitter profile. But I don't like it. I much prefer ROI as a measure uh, for all the reasons that that you stated. I mean, there are some reasons somebody would be flat staking just in general rather than altering their bet sizes. Um, and that's usually to do with liquidity and stuff like that. But yeah, definitely I, I echo that sentiment about ROI being a much better measure than just the overall units. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to clear that up. I mean, I did. I just did a quick Twitter search of Brendan Future and myself just to see where we've at, interacted before. It seems to think, he seems to think that I'm, uh, I was paid by a sports book to put on the, the Ben versus Tortellini competition. So Again, when I go back to like, you know, we all have those friends that think they know everything about everything. It seems to me that this is just one of those guys who uh, is annoying 
but he does have 16, 17,000 followers. I hope he keeps tweeting about Betstamp, regardless of whether it's good or bad, because at least it's going to draw some uh, visibility to the platform. Uh, because I'm sure that the 16 to 17,000 people that follow him in general, um, they all follow for different reasons. So um, please keep going with the Betstamp tweets, uh, Brendan, if you do hear about this. Did, did we want to touch on the the Christie's auction sale? We do. I want to I want to touch on two more things. Uh, we'll 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 do the Christie's auction sale now, um, because we've talked about NFTs in the past before. Uh, both Johnny and myself are are invested in CryptoPunks, so we've been kind of looking forward to what came yesterday, uh, which was an auction of nine different punks. One of them being uh, an alien punk, which is extremely rare in one bundle. Um, I kind of went in beforehand with a number that I was hoping that they would go for. They didn't go for that number. In my opinion, they sold for, uh, after the, you know, the transaction fee or whatever, roughly 17 million us dollars. Um, and it seems like, I mean, this is speculation. It's not, you know, confirmed, but it seems like, uh, Haralabob, Bob Vulgaris was the one that ended up buying the punks uh in general so um interesting night for me like watching art auctions and then punk auctions uh but i'm very intrigued by this space just in general and uh i wanted to get your thoughts jody on on what you took away from that sale yesterday i I will say i'm I did try to tune into the auction. I definitely watched the punks portion of it, obviously, as it was interest to me, but trying to watch the rest of it was pretty painful. <laughs> uh, it's like, uh, for those who don't know what it is, it's basically like a really bougie auction, just like you would see in the movies where none of the people who actually have the money and are, are bidding on the things are there. It's like they're representatives and they're on the phone. It's just like the movies, you know, it's like, call in, can you, can you get a confirmation? Is it, you know, 14 million here? Can I get 14 and a half? And then it's basically like a really cool, cool thing to see. But, you know, it's not for me in terms of uh, the the style of it. Uh, in terms of the punks thing, I think, yeah, based on the Ethereum price, based on the ETH price of what those punks were selling for prior to the auction, I think the 16 and a half or whatever you want to call it, just under 17 mil was an absolute steal. Um, given that, Hilarious, alien- to, hilarious to hear anyone say that though, by the way, like, Oh, I, se- I know, I know. $17 I, I million. Dollars that. I told a buddy that I said, I said, uh, he messaged me today and he said, Hey, should I get in on crypto punks? And I said, I mean, what, like what, why, how'd you hear about it? And he said, he saw the, the Christie auction and he thought he was getting in on the ground floor, but <laughs> like, he didn't, he didn't know that like, like it's been kind of hyped for a few months. And I told him, yeah, like the Christie auction kind of, you know, is a little bit of a butcher to the market because the price should have sold for higher in theory based on the the floor prices that the market had shown prior to that. And and he said, so you mean to tell me that the 17 mil was a steal? <laughs> I said, yes, yeah, I, I think it was. Um, it's crazy because there's a few personalities on Twitter. Um, one, he goes, I forget his at handle, but Beanie Maxi is, is what he goes what he goes by on Twitter. He was saying like how... He thought 20, 20 million in theory would be uh, probably the floor it could go for based on the ETH, the ETH prices and that it should be worth up to that. I heard some rumors that 
some of the groups were willing to go for for higher, you know, like up to 24, 25 million. But um, there was challenges in regards to actually getting the money and like some regulatory stuff based on the fact that like the Christie's sale is ultimately in United States dollars mm-hmm. when most of the transactions are like, I mean, every transaction of, of a CryptoPunk prior has been in ETH. So it's pretty hard to, you know, go through all the KYC and stuff like that on a short-term basis. So yeah, I was disappointed with the price. Ultimately, I do think it's a steal um, because, I mean, those were developer punks. Some, most of them were developer punks. But if you look at it, like if they had just posted up that alien for, you know, let's say 3,600 ETH or 4,000 ETH, which is the rough equivalent after the buyer's premium, I think it likely would have sold. Uh, at that price just for the alien punk let alone a few others there was punk serial number 0002 which is extra rare is one of the first ones minted so overall yeah i'm a little bit disappointed but i think you know just having the auction alone was you know a cool thing to see and was probably good for digital art in general whether that you know directly impacts punks or not uh, in the near future it's still like you know to be seen yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think it brought a lot more visibility to the space in general, uh, but the the price that it sold for was disappointing. So um, I I didn't. I mean, I've seen some sales today. Just in general, they're much. They're very much in line with what the sales were previous to um, the auction as well. So it's it hasn't caused a dip in the market or anything like that. Um, but um, I mean. Well, it dipped I, the market bef- the day of the Christie auction sale. Dipped the market quite a bit. Um, so I guess potentially people had inside information on kind of what the sale price was going to be and how that might affect it. But yes, like, uh, after the auction versus before the auction is like, you know, a minimal difference as of right now, but we'll see what the lasting impact is moving forward. I know going like when the news was announced for the auction that raised the punk floor, you know, a couple ETH, three, four ETH or more. So that was kind of like one of those. You know, they say the saying a lot in investing, but like buy the rumors, sell the news type thing mm-hmm. uh, that that came into play here. But anyways, I'm still, you know, excited for CryptoPunks. Awesome project. Uh, the community is amazing. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we still see some value appreciation moving forward. Yeah. The buy the rumor, sell the news um, was not any more evident than Elon Musk Saturday Night Live, uh, where for the entire week, uh, basically Dogecoin pump to the moon and then the second saturday night live started where elon was hosting a pretty big dump and uh, on its way back down but uh yeah i find this f- space to be fascinating it consumes a lot of my day-to-day whether that's just looking at crypto prices or looking into different nfts in general i missed the boat on zed run i mean i was very early to look at zed run before it became a big thing which is uh digital horse racing essentially for those that don't know uh it's kind of blowing up now but um, I do find the space very fascinating and um, definitely I, I look down at the clock sometimes and I'm like, oh my God, I've spent so much time today just looking into these NFTs, but um, it's an interesting space to be involved in. We should try to get some interesting guests on. Maybe we'll do like a crypto and NFT only podcast that anyone who's not interested in can just skip. Yeah, not a bad idea. Um, last topic i wanted to pick your brain on because we haven't had a chance to talk about it um we haven't spoken much in in the last week or so but um this was pretty topical on twitter um and obviously received some other press as well last week but uh, the action network selling for 240 million dollars what was your original reaction to that 
Yeah. So I had some info. I, I knew that likely the sale of the action network was pretty imminent. I didn't know what the price point would be. So, you know, as someone who is, you know, a part owner in Betstamp, co-founder of Betstamp, which ultimately we hope can one day grow and surpass the size of the action network. Um, I was hoping for as, as high a sale price as possible. I think 240 mil was, uh, you know, a fair price. I, I think it could have been a little higher, could have been a little lower. Nobody really knew kind of, like, it's hard to value these things. But what I will say is a lot of these companies are getting swooped up right now. You see like also the sale of VSIN, uh, you know, Dan Lebetard show. There's like a bunch of different smaller shows that are being scooped up by these bigger sports books or by these like bigger affiliates. Um, lineups.com was another one. And just like in this space with the betting content, we've talked about it so many times. Just like, I really just hope like someone will come along and start producing like decent stuff or have a way to, you know, provide value outside of just like the bogus, the bogus fluff content, the fluff pieces, like here's your, you know, five Oscar winners, or here's how to bet the Kentucky Derby. And it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, a guy who doesn't bet on the Kentucky Derby, he's never won money betting in his life and doesn't understand it. So I, I know that's just how it is right now. And we've talked about it before, but you know, even with the Kelly and Vegas stuff going to ESPN, like who knows mm-hmm. what's going to be on, on daily wager now. And they're letting people go left, right and center and bringing on types of people like Kelly in Vegas. And again, nothing wrong with her uh, as a person. Um, I don't know Kelly in Vegas. I don't know you know much about her outside of the fact that I see some of her content and I know it's not very valuable if you're trying to win at sports, sports betting. So a lot of this stuff, like for me, I'm happy it's selling and it's growing sports betting and that's great. But I, I just hope someone can come along or, you know, maybe just be a better content-based solution uh, for the space. Yeah, I I understand and I hear everything that you're saying. I think with the Action Network, um, for me, I thought the sale price was fair, maybe even a bit low, if I'm being honest. Because when I first heard that they were up for sale, I thought they would sell for more than $240 million. Um, A lot of people might be shocked at that and they might pull their hair out. Uh, anyone you know, that I really communicate with regularly, and this is by choice, like I've surrounded myself with a certain um, number of people on Twitter that are probably more anti or anti, I guess, I don't know if that's a Canadian or US thing, but anti-action network than pro-action network. Um, And I see a lot of the points that they're making and it's mostly around the content. Like, oh, how could a company with, you know, Darren Ravel as as the, you know, figurehead sell for that much money? But that's not what it's really about. Like the action network is such a well-oiled machine in this space. Whether I like it or not, I don't, frankly, because I, I don't love most of the content that they're producing in, uh, in general. And I, I essentially, I think that they're producing a lot of bad content and then sending people to sports books to bet based off of that bad content, which I'm not a big fan of. But regardless of what you think of that, the business model itself and what they're doing is great in terms of producing revenue. Now they're not profitable because they're spending so much money just in general. But if you're Googling sports betting terms, or you're someone that doesn't know much about sports betting, trying to learn about something, you're very rarely going to Google something and not get an action network result in like your first three to five results on Google. So they're doing very well in terms of search engine optimization, SEO. And 
they can just continuously bring people onto this platform through Google search. Like they don't have to, you know, rely on, on anyone else. It whereas like, like that's just a huge asset to have in general. So whether you like Darren Ravel or not, or their other personalities, like I can't stand Chris Raybon, right? Raybon, I have alerts set for him on the action network because I laugh to myself at how often this guy is locking in stale lines. NBA news comes and five minutes later, Chris Raybon locks in a play where the line doesn't exist on the board. Like, what is the he point? He did it again today. Did he, he do did it, it again? T- yeah, yeah. Um, after the, the Lakers news, I mean, this is not really timeless content. It's relevant to today only, but uh, the, the the Lakers, like LeBron's questionable. AD's probably not going to play. And um, this guy just five, 10 minutes later, he's he's <laughs> popping like the under and he's popping against the Lakers at numbers that haven't existed for 10 minutes. Now, you're going to say, oh, what's what's 10 minutes? That's night and day. Like, to play an under 224 versus a 220 is, you know, that's like a 7, 8% edge. It's crazy. So, yeah, you know, whatever. It's It's been said. We're trying to eliminate that stuff with BetStamp. Um, but yeah, go on on the Action Network stuff. Definitely don't. And if you want to bet that stuff, sorry, one more thing, actually. I'm not, I'm not going to be done yet. If you're betting that and kind of steam chasing the injury news, that's awesome. So you're going to make money doing that. If you're set up and you get the alert that LeBron James is out, and you're able to pounce right away and and play against the Lakers, that's going to be profitable, and you deserve that money that you got. But don't give that out as a pick yep. to people. That's you know what I mean. Don't post that, especially not late, but even regular. Like it's just an it's a slap in the face to give that out as a pick. That is, I I, I don't swear a lot on this podcast, but it, it is the ultimate piece of shit move. It really is like one of the shittiest things you can do because. So many people that follow him and are are subscribed to alerts for him have no concept of price sensitivity. Zero. As soon as they see an under come in on a game, they're going to go and bet the under regardless of what the number is. And you are literally setting setting them up for failure. And it's part of the business model. Like, I'm I'm not saying that they're on revenue share deals for affiliates. Um, And just to explain that for people out there, like what an affiliate is, but Action Network is a major affiliate in that they're partnered with other sports books and they are anytime they send a, a player to a sports book and that player makes a deposit, they're getting paid what's called a CPA, cost per acquisition, in all likelihood. They might have some rev share deals with some sports books, but I highly, highly doubt those because So so I think actually um now again, none of this is confirmed. I don't think Action Network because this is all public state info that you can yeah. check. So to get an affiliate license for a rev share deal, you need what's called an ancillary license. And I don't think Action Network possesses any of those. However, what I do know is that the company that purchased Action Network, um, Better Club BC as they're called, yep, uh, does possess ancillary licenses in all of the legal US states that they're eligible. So currently, I don't think, I mean, legally Action Network is unable to affiliate on a rev share deal, but in the future after the sale, I think they will be able to, which is something to note is if you're going to send players to a, a sports book and take a share of their losses while whilst also providing them content that's going to lose i mean i don't know why anyone would be would be reading that and and be and feeling good about playing that stuff yeah i hear you uh, i mean it, it, i i think like that's obviously what the personalities are are tr- like the whole goal of of doing this content and having people lock in picks and building up a following is to to drive people to sports books like that's how action network's going to make money right 
Uh, I just don't think that the majority of the content on site is good. Now, with there are some exceptions to that. Let's not like I have friendships with some people that work at Action Network, and um, I also think that they do have some stuff that's valuable. Like they have uh, Sean Corner there. Uh, I think he's the odds maker on Twitter or whatever, who I think is a sharp guy just in general, um, who's, you know, if, if people are following his advice or reading any of his stuff um, or listening to any um, audio or watching videos that he's doing, they're probably not being led astray. But I think for every one of him, there's a number of other people that are producing uh, garbage content. But all in all, it's a well-oiled machine and it's a good piece of technology. The app and website, are are fairly good there's not a lot of downtime they work well like so i get why a company would be interested in purchasing them and um as much as it pains me to know that Ravel probably has some equity in action network and probably made a killing off the sale they had a clear established goal of of what they wanted to do as a business i don't necessarily agree with it um but they're a successful business. And if you're looking from a money perspective, I think that would make a lot of sense to a prospective buyer. Um, the last thing I'll say about that is like, I'm not, a, I'm not anti-affiliate in any way. I just think that if you're going to affiliate and you're going to send people to sports books, you can do it in a way that's like kosher. One is you can provide them with a utility that is not going to lead them to losing or is going to help them lose less. Like, I'm not necessarily saying you're going to be able to turn a losing better into a winning better because that, frankly, in probably three quarters of the cases, that's impossible. But you can provide them with something that's going to make them lose less um, over the long run. And that is enough just in general. Um, so I, I think there's other ways to go about affiliating. I think it's a very good way to run a business and be profitable with this market right now. But um, not a big fan of producing you know, here are my three picks for tonight, regardless of, of how many games there are, picking arbitrary amount of picks just to drum up some content, just to drum, just to get some interest in people betting. Like, I don't like that. It's just not something that I'm too fond of. Agreed completely. Uh, yeah. Okay. So before we, uh, before we bring on the guest here, what I wanted to do is kind of give a brief overview of what this guest does and how um, Harut is different than abnormally dissed who we had on last week so as you guys know abnormally dissed he said he referenced the term steam chaser he said he's more of an originator so i'm going to give the definition of you know what most people think an originator and a steam chaser is and then i might give a different definition of kind of like what i think it is we'll hear rob's facts and then we'll bring on uh, harut who is known on twitter as you know a steam chaser him and his partner his group uh, so we'll, we'll give the definitions here. So he, he's known as one half of the McLaren uh, consortium. If correct. So it's it's him, and then his partner is at Armenian Better. Uh, Drew is his name, and uh, yeah. So they're <laughs> we got to ask him about that. <laughs> yeah, they, for they, sure. They br- they bought a McLaren and posted on Twitter and got a lot of hate for it uh, because I guess they're chasing steam in the McLaren now. So so definition. Um, of an originator, in my opinion. Uh, actually, you know what? I'll start with the, the public definition. People think an originator is someone who kind of models up the games themselves and makes their own numbers from scratch. So I, I, I widely agree with this. I would say an originator is anybody who is essentially 
creating some sort of model, but it doesn't have to be a financial model or a numerical model. It could be them just watching the games and making numbers off the top of their head. I'd still consider that an originator. But basically what they're going to do is have numbers for games. So I might say, you know, I make Giants minus six. And then I'm going to look at the board and I'm going to see that the Giants are actually minus four or minus three. And I'm going to say, you know what? I make a minus six. I can get a minus three. Let me go hit that minus three. And an originator at some level would eventually scale and then probably work with what's called like a mover, someone who can maybe get more money down, or maybe they've got an operation themselves and stuff like that. But for the most part, that's what I think the consensus of an originator is. And Rob, I know you are a hockey originator. Would you have anything to add or do you think that was a fine definition? I think it's fine. I think um, Steam Chaser can mean a lot of things to different people. Um, And I think that there are levels of Steam Chaser. If I wanted to add to that, like you kind of have your professional where it's more so trying to get down on the same number as everyone else, or or at least the best number possible. And then you kind of have the Steam Chaser. Um, I can think of a couple examples of people that I won't name names, but it's like the line has already been moved and it's already been shaped. And then they're just going to bet on top of that to be on the quote unquote sharp side even though it might not be the sharp side anymore, right? So I think that there's a distinction there. And when we're referring to to Harut as a steam chaser, we're talking more in a professional capacity than someone who's just waiting for lines to move and then getting down. Yeah, okay. So I guess that's like a, a brief definition of a steam chaser, but I'll, I'll take a step back. So a steam chaser in, in, all, in what I believe it is, is people who are essentially sitting in front of a screen, waiting for like a, a number to move, and then hitting that number um, at the same number. So let's say you know, you, you've got the line at Giants minus four and an originator hits it and moves it up to minus six. Then that steam chaser is going to quickly search all of his outs and hit all of the minus fours before they, they move. So there's different types of steam chasers. There's people who might be like well connected and connected into the back end of sports books where they can see who's moving what before the screen moves. There's people who are on, you know, maybe the Don Best screen or watch comparing odds on, you know, like Betstamp, for example, and seeing, oh, this like pinnacle just moved. Let me go hit Fox Bet or Bet MGM, which might be like a slower out. So I think that is what the definition of a steam chaser is. That's what, uh, you know, Harud and his partner Drew get labeled as. But I think what you guys are going to see when in this interview, hopefully, is that there's many different levels to what's called a steam chaser and in all likelihood, it's not just sitting in front of a screen and waiting for something to click. It's a lot more that goes into it. So I can give you, you know, an, an overview and I can talk about it all, all I want, but it's probably be- best that we just bring on the guest and have him explain what he does and, and how it gets done. All right. We're going to welcome in our guest here for this week. You can follow him on Twitter at BetLikeHarout, H-A-R-O-U-T, Harut Masoyan. It's good to actually finally meet you and we're recording face-to-face here over video. So nice to meet you. I've heard uh, a lot of things about you through uh, through Johnny here, but it's good to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be on. I appreciate the chance to talk with you guys. Yeah. So something that's um, interesting in my personal life is, you know, we, we kind of broke down before we, we got on the, we brought you in here, but the difference between an originator and, and a steam chaser um, and I don't think it's just cut and dry that either you're an originator or a steam chaser. I think there's combinations of both and there's like somewhere in between. But I've personally always had, um, I guess, maybe like some prejudice towards 
towards Steam Chasers just in general because they've constantly been a, a thorn in my side. Um, and I haven't been betting on sports for decades or anything like that. But but since I have been doing it seriously, there's always that risk of sending out a bet or betting on something and and losing the number because someone else is getting down quicker than you're able to get down at, at all your, your outs. So uh, that's always been a challenge for me. And, and because of that, you know, I, I've always had this negative connotation around a steam chaser. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start by giving you the opportunity to defend your craft and, and what you do, or maybe tell me that that's not exactly what you do. And there's different ways that you go about things to bet on sports. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's obvious, you know, steam chasers are not really, you know, respected in this industry. They're frowned upon a lot. And, and you could see the reasons why, you know, there are originators in this space who who put a ton of work in their craft to come up with numbers to help them shape the markets and, and get what they're looking for from the market. I think when I first started off in this business, especially a few years ago, all we were doing was trying to, you know, chase the board and see what there is that we can pick off after the market has already moved. But as we scaled in this business, in this industry, we found it very hard to seek the growth that we were looking for just by picking off bad numbers and, and trying to chase a number that maybe was stale or hard to get. And, um, you know, over the years, we, we understood that there had to be other ways to approach this market, not just chase steam. Um, a lot of my focus over the past couple months has been to build relationships and networks with people in this space who are respected and who are really good at, you know, coming up with their own numbers simply because I want to take a more uh, respectful approach um, to the market as opposed to, you know, some of the others in the space who might just be trying to do their own thing or trying to pick off information Um I've been on both sides in terms of betting. You know, we move a lot of markets as well for guys I know in this space. And, you know, it, the same, the same goes for me. If I'm, if I'm moving the market for somebody I work with, have a direct relationship with, I wouldn't like it either if someone picked off that information and blasted the market before I could, you know, fill the, fill the entire side, uh, that we're looking for. So I definitely get it. I understand the reasons why steam chasers are not, you know, respected in this industry. And if, if you are doing it that way, if you, if you are, you know, you know, stealing from people, I, I don't really think that's ethical. So I don't like that approach. And, and I want to, you know, basically share my perspective on, on what I think is the correct way to do things. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, go ahead, Johnny. So what are, what are you doing then on a, on a day to day? So you mentioned, uh, you're not, or you were just watching the board when you first started and now it's become more than that. You mentioned market making for a few things. Do you mind like telling people kind of like what that is and which role you play in that? Yeah. So obviously we just, we still do some things where, you know, we feel like we like a side, um, by watching the board, obviously things are moving. So I, like to get ahead of the market if I feel like I have a read on something, but it's almost impossible for me to pick off somebody else's play and ruin the entire market simply because I haven't set myself up with technology that would allow me to do that. I probably could if I wanted to, but it's not like I have an odds ticker or I'm getting access to the back end of a, of a PPH site where I can say, Oh, Hey, this person's playing this. I'm going to go blast it before they can get to the entire thing. And I'm not sure how other people operate in this field or in this business or what they're doing, but 
I can tell you guys now that we are pretty savvy when it comes to tech, but I don't think I could ever see myself developing or seeking someone to develop something that would give me information that I don't necessarily want. Like it's not my intention to steal info from anybody. If if I've done it in a way where I've built a relationship or I've built some kind of a, a partnership with a guy who's making the market or wants wants somebody to, move, somebody to move the market for them, that's a different story because we have an agreement there. He, you know, he's leveraging my betting skills. I'm leveraging his, his ability to make the market. And I think that's a fair way, you know, to bet and get down and both of us to be able to benefit and bring value to, to the situation. Okay. So Harut, so how, how did you get into this space? Like, um, did, did you start off as some sort of recreational better who just saw some sort of opportunity? Like it, it's weird to me, you're a pretty young guy. Uh, well, I mean, depends on perspective, but you're younger than I am. And to go, you know, make the leap directly into sports betting. And then, um, originally, like you said, just kind of moving up, you know, watching an odd screen and, and essentially steam chasing at that point. Like, how do you get to that point? Um, what, like what opportunities did you see out of the gate? And I, I guess kind of just fill us in a little bit on your background and how you got to that spot. Yeah. I mean, ever since I was a young kid, I liked to try a, a, a bunch of different things. I was pretty ambitious. My grandparents and my parents were always in business and it, and it kind of inspired me to kind of follow, follow their same, you know, footsteps. I, you know, went to school, went to college, um, tried different things. Um, wasn't had a finance background and I was just interested in business overall. Um, I had, you know, opened up a gaming center when I was like 21. It was like a land center. I pretty much opened a space for people to come and, and, and game and set up parties and stuff. And I just, you know, through the years when I was trying different things, I was always betting recreationally. So it was fun for me. You know, I was passionate about sports. I, I, I really enjoyed, you know, watching the NBA. I, I grew up playing basketball, so it was one of the sports that kind of tied me into sports betting. Um, but just through the years, I learned a lot in the business side. So I knew that there was a way for me to also approach, you know, the the betting professionally. I spent a lot of times on forums and stuff. I, I've always been, uh, you know, interested in creating, you know, relationships with people. Me and Johnny, you know, we talk all the time because I enjoy that kind of, you know, um, that aspect of being able to share thoughts with other guys in the industry. And it's helped me learn a lot through the years because I don't know everything. One of the ways I've acquired knowledge in this business is, you know, being curious and, and trying to reach out to different people who I feel are smart and educated in this industry and help me learn because I don't have an ego. I think that there are a lot of guys who are, you know, who, who know a lot more than I do. And that's kind of how I've been brought up in this business. Yeah. So good, good answer. I couldn't agree with you more on the uh, relationship building piece. I want to take a little bit of a step back and touch on one of the things you mentioned, which was um, maybe even just trying to dumb the conversation down a little bit here um, for people who might not know what like a market maker is or things like that. So what what you're saying is people who may have an edge on maybe smaller markets, maybe different obscure markets or unique things would kind of work with you to get them money down on those things. And obviously in exchange, you would get uh, maybe like a little cut or, or something like that. What I wanted you to do is kind of like explain how that works, but also, and first and foremost, like 
given that the relationships are so important, like how are you building relationships with people who might be able to send you plays on, you know, smaller market sports or different, different markets? Yeah, I, I spend a lot of my time when I'm not, you know, trading or watching the screen um, to make our betting decisions to also network with people and see what kind of talent there is out there, you know, just like, uh, you know, uh, there's scouting done in professional sports to find talent. I think that the same can be done in sports betting. There's actually a lot of, you know, guys who, who try to originate and model their own numbers. Um, there's a ton of talented people that I've met, not just in the U.S., um, but also in the European countries. And one of my focuses this past year has been to try to find people who who might have a good model, have something there that looks promising after I review it and say, okay, you know what, this, this, this person has something here that's valuable. Um, maybe he's not, he doesn't have the role or the funds to, to, to bet it properly or adequately himself. And those are, those are honestly my favorite kind of situations because I'm, I'm capable of providing value there. You know, I can move markets for, for, for guys like that. And, and they have good information that's just not been put out there. I mean, they deserve a shot to be seen. And, and that's kind of overlooked in this business because a lot of the guys who, who have the information, um, who are big time, it's no problem for them. You know, they've built relationships and have guys who can move for them. But these guys, they, it's, it's created a really good opportunity for us to, to see what they have and, and move the markets for them. And it's, it's been a good relationship overall. That really hits home with me because that's essentially how I got started in sports betting, right? I, I, I started modeling. I was very undercapitalized and I was essentially just posting my models outputs, the win probabilities to Twitter every day. Um, and I guess I had something that was worthwhile for baseball because after about a month and a half, someone reached out to me and said, Hey, as soon as you're posting these numbers, somebody's going and hitting the screen right away. We can't have that happen. It's costing us a lot of money. So why don't you come work with us and we'll give you a good bet. And, um, I, I do think that that's a lot of, uh, I think some people are taking advantage of that now and trying to get discovered in, in that avenue. But I do think that there's a lot of people out there that, um, like I said, are, are undercapitalized, uh, don't know what to do. Like I would have no idea, even if I had something good five years ago and I knew it, I would have no idea how to maximize my profit off that or my gain or to avoid betting at, at pinnacle or Chris or things of that nature. Right. Um, so I, I, that, that, that really hits home with me. And I, I'm glad that there are people that are out there doing that, giving other people opportunities, because, uh, I think a lot of good talent is going to get found that way. For sure. I absolutely agree. I mean, we've been doing it for a while and it just, it, like you said, it, it hits home because, you're providing value to somebody who's probably seeking that in this space. And if I can help somebody bridge that gap between being undercapitalized and having a solid foundation and set of resources, I mean, that means a lot to me because it, it does technically mean that I'm providing value to someone and helping them get to their goals. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take it in, a, in another direction here. Um, this comes up on Twitter a lot with Steam Chasers. And again, I'm very immersed in the Twitter community. So that's where I get a lot of my stuff from. And granted, I'm, I don't want to label you as strictly a steam chaser just based off of, of what you've just said now. And you do have like proprietary numbers and there's a mix to that. 
but the the biggest um you know kind of like the biggest thing that people go after is i don't want to live my life staring at a screen all day right like yeah, okay, you're making good money, but you're spending 16 hours a day behind a computer just watching lines move. Is that your day for for one? And um if it is, like do you enjoy it? Is it is the you know, the profit that you're making offset the work that you're putting in? Just walk me through a little bit of I guess what a day-to-day looks like and whether that's that's a myth or not. Yeah, I mean we are, you know, getting coverage and we're, we're staying on screen as an, as a business, you know, at, like between me and my partner and guys who work with us. Um, we, we're just monitoring markets. It's not like we're just sitting there on our chair and saying, Oh, we're just waiting for something to move so we can go blast it and beat the market. No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we're running a professional business here, an operation that we've spent a lot of time and in, invested, um, to get it to where it's at. And I think that based on the fact that we're working with a lot of people, a lot of people depend on us, they're relying on us to deliver the value that we've promised. It's important for us to be around. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm married. I, I have a family. I mean, it's just, it's not realistic to sit there for 16 hours and just, you know, chip my life away. But the times that I am spending, I mean, it's worthwhile my time. I enjoy what I'm doing. I can't complain. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing it. It's not like I force myself to do anything just because of money. It has to make sense both um, financially and, of course, you know, it has to it has to fit. It has to fit the, um, you know, it has to make me feel good about what I'm doing in my life. If I'm doing something that I don't think, you know, provides value to the space or I'm just kind of, um, you know, doing things unethically, that's not my style. I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. I mean, those who know me, who've, who've, who've built relationships with me and are my friends, you know, that I always put them first. And I want the same to be in this, in this sports betting space. I'm not, I'm not the best. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a market maker like that. Um, there are certain things that I have experience with that I can say I know this sport better than others. It's not like I don't know anything. However, I think that the sports betting ecosystem relies a lot of different moving pieces. People who can move markets are important. People who can shape markets are important. And I think that if we all work together and understand what it is that we're trying, what it is that we're trying to do, I think everybody can um, come to an understanding and respect each other. Yeah, well said. So I wanted to bring up a couple of things that, uh, again, like Rob mentioned, crossed the Twitter timeline uh, last week. One of the main ones being uh, basically just a few tweets from a few people that whatever, we don't need to name names and stir the pot, but we, you've been accused or basically been labeled as someone who has buyback accounts. And I think this is more prevalent in the industry right now from the steam chasers side. So a lot of people think that what's happening is the steam chasers are getting ahead of one side of the number and then arbing back playing out on the other side. Um, The issue with this is you have a lot of different partners who might be giving you different accounts to bet into that you have, you know, maybe 50-50 partnerships, 80-20 partnerships. So when you're playing back on some accounts, some partners are going to win, some partners are going to lose. Overall, your portfolio might win, but I guess what's, what's crossed the Twitter timeline is, you know, I guess questions I can ask you, are you playing back? Do you truly feel that all your partners are going to win or is there only a percentage that are going to win? 
and a percentage that are going to lose and overall the total total portfolio is going to win. So I was wondering if you could speak to that and then just kind of give your your opinion on you know if this is a viable strategy. Yeah, for sure. I mean it's we we're not I can tell you that right now we're not our group does not you know, buy back. We truly believe that the only time we should be making a bet is if we're betting for value. If I feel like a line is efficient, there is no reason for me to hit that number. I'm just better off, you know, if I'm, if I want to play up to my risk threshold, I'll bet up to that risk threshold. And if for whatever reason I do get more than I want on a position, there's no reason for me to hit it in my partner's account and give them a negative EV bet. That's just not transparent. That's not right. If I were to have to do something like that, I'd either cross or just lay that off at at, at, an, at a place that doesn't affect any of my partners. I think that's the right way to do it. Do we do it? Yes, occasionally, because sometimes, you know, things happen in the market. I'm overfilled on a position. Sometimes we do need that liquidity. But that those situations are very rare. Um, our, our focus and our importance is to play the right side. I feel very confident in knowing what, what side that is simply because I have guys who make markets on my team as well who I can get feedback off of and say, hey, which, you know, what are we looking at here? But also just by, just by having experience of looking at the screen and using, you know, that technical analysis to know like which way markets will probably go. Um, I'm not picking off information. I'm just trying to gauge the market. So I'm, I'm trying to get ahead of it. But that's off of my own abilities. I'm not trying to get ahead of it off somebody else's information. So it allows me to get on on the right side and on a good number more often than not. And there's hardly ever reason for me to ever buy back. From from what I've heard and seen in the industry, a lot of uh, guys think steam chasers are one percent earners. Um, I've I let the numbers speak for themselves. Like you know. We have it. We have the numbers to show, and we're out. We're outperforming that by, by you know, three x. So I mean, it's one of those where we must be doing something right, um, because we're we're overachieving the standard. Do you keep track of your your actual uh, hold versus your theoretical hold? And if so, like, is is your because the tendency is that your theoretical tends to always be higher than actual. Uh, at least I've heard that quite a bit. For me, I don't have the same experience with that, but I'm just curious if if you monitor that regularly. No, actually we don't, and we're very select. We don't have a discrepancy there. I mean, we've created a big, we we've established a pretty decent sample size now. So I mean, everything we track in our own sheets, and we're able to compare that, and we're in line with what we should be performing at. Um, for others to not be performing where they should be at, maybe they're getting closing line value on something where they don't necessarily have an edge. I think that's where my experience and in spending a lot of time, you know, watching the screen and trying to actually play positions myself as opposed to picking somebody else's information information allows me to be selective and figure out what I truly think is a good play. And the stuff that we bet are really close um, in terms of performance to our theoretical hold. For those that, that don't might not understand what the theoretical hold is, it's what you would be expected to hold based off of your closing line value essentially with assuming that the closing line is the efficient or like the best indicator we have as of a true probability of a game or an event um that's what the theoretical hold is just as a an, an ex- explainer to anyone who might not understand that okay so we've heard tons and tons of times in this industry like i got limited at this sports book i can't play here anymore um there's no, they, these guys won't take my action. These guys limited me to $3. Obviously, if you're winning 
um, you know, at the level that most believe you are. So, you know, earning a, earning a decent wage betting every single day into multiple, multiple accounts. Uh, how do you continue to get more accounts? What types of accounts are you, are you using? Like, obviously, you know, living in Vegas, you have access to a different set of sports books that people outside of Nevada don't necessarily have. But is that the most of your, is that most of your volume? Like, where does your volume come from? And, and is there any challenges there? Like what, you know, how does that work? Can you talk, uh, talk on that for a bit? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a constant search to, you know, try to find new outlets to, to get money down. And I mean, of course, if you're winning and you're profitable, it's, it's not accounts are just not going to sustain itself wherever we try to do things and, and play certain ways that would increase the longevity. Like we would never, we, like I said, we don't buy back into accounts. So that's something that we never have to worry about an agent looking at an account and saying, Hey, you're betting like over 137 and a half and under 143 and a half, or you can't be middling into accounts like that. I, I don't believe in account abuse. So we just try to do what we can to increase the longevity. And then it just, you know, the accounts play its course. We just, we just constantly have to find new outlets to, to be able to get down. Um, and, you know, just trying to keep seeking um, partners and, and yeah, we do get down in Vegas and such. Um, but I, we're just balanced overall. Like we try to get what we can, wherever we can. So Harut, you were talking earlier about how, when you first started, you were looking at, you know, ways to scale the business, right? Obviously everybody starts somewhere and they want to grow. Would you say that you've kind of gotten close to peak capacity now? Like, because I, a lot of people experience this, right? They get to, to some level where it becomes, okay, I'm losing all these accounts and I'm just essentially continuously replacing them. Do you have any ideas on how to scale further? Do you need to scale further? Or are you just comfortable with where you're at right now? Just kind of, kind of walk me through that a little bit. I mean, we're always looking to scale and try to grow. Um, I'm, I've always been, um, you know, had that abundance mentality. I'm always trying to find ways where we can improve and grow. I don't think that there is such a thing as saying, Hey, I've hit my cap or I've hit my peak here. I think, you know, if you use creativity and try to find ways where you can branch out, even if you can't necessarily scale in one aspect of your business, I think there are ways to do multiple things and, and combine them together and, and make it as a whole. You know, we're just trying to see where we can grow and where we can improve. I mean, every day is a learning experience for me. And, and that's another reason why I love this industry so much is I, there hasn't been a day where I haven't learned something. And I and I look forward to continue to keep growing. And we're always looking for, obviously, partnerships. I want to provide value to people. I want to give people an opportunity to see what it's like to do um, the work that we do. And um, it's important for me just to do things the correct way. If it means scaling slower, I'd rather scale slower and, and get to where I want to be the correct way than just try to um, do things that are outside of what I believe in. So what what does it take now to scale then? Is it, you mentioned obviously keeping accounts. Is it more partners? Is it better technology? Is it more resources? Like what's it going to take now to get you to the next level? I think, you know, more partners uh, would definitely would definitely help us, you know, scale our business. I think we've reached a point where a lot of people, you know, are aware of what we do, but I think a higher percentage of people know what we do and, you know, haven't really given us a, a shot to work with us. I, I, at the very least, I'd, I'd like people to, to reach out and see what ways we can help each other now that 
people know what it is I do. If there is an opportunity for me to provide value to people, I want to be able to do that. And if I can't, I mean, then I have no, you know, purpose to to help you. If 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 we're gonna be able to help each other out and 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 make something of value to to the both of us, then I I'd be interested in those kinds of opportunities. That for sure. Um, something that's always interested me in this space is I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, close with Spanky and that, you know, we talk to each other pretty regularly. Uh, I would say that he was definitely, uh, my partner would call Spanky the bane of his existence, which he's actually said to Spanky <laughs> before, which is hilarious, but I'm close with him. I kind of, you know, know how he operates. I, uh, I listened to the, uh, bet the process podcast where they had Shane Sigsby on, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, which I thought was an interesting interview. But what I was most like, what I'm fascinated with about those two guys in particular is that most, you know, both of them um, and and some others in the space know nothing about sports. Like they don't follow games. I remember when Andrew Luck retired, Spanky tweeted something about how like betting a bunch of money on, uh, I don't even remember what market it was, but he's like, I have no idea who Andrew Luck even is, which I can't even imagine how that's possible for someone who's betting on sports. Um, it, it, like, what's your level of sports fandom? Do you, do you follow? Do you think it helps you in your craft at all? Do you have to, you know, kind of set it aside? I'm just curious where, where you sit as a sports fan. I mean, I grew up loving basketball. I watched NBA since I was 10 years old. So I had a very good foundation and understanding of all the players and the teams as, you know, as the years went on until I became a sports better. And now it helps me tremendously in the space because, you know, injuries happen and information comes into the marketplace. And to me, that's like, you know, it's fair game. I'll try to get on, on, on a side, but I think knowing the players and knowing how much each player is worth allows me allows me to be ahead and not have to guess because if you have to guess in certain spots it puts you at a huge disadvantage because you can play numbers and you might not know you know how much how much each player is worth or even when stuff when even when a market is moving you know let's say let's say you get plus three and a half on a side and then the market's sitting efficient at like five and a half after after a market moves like it if I know like that's where it probably belongs, there's no reason for me to hit the other side and and lay off on an efficient at an efficient number if I'm certain of which where the market belongs. Um, and also, uh, working with um, the the modelers I was telling you about has also allowed me to ask questions. I like to ask a lot of questions and understand as much as I possibly can. Like knowledge is important for me and also curiosity is something that I value not only in myself but in other people as well Um, because asking these questions allows me to understand um, the sports that I'm betting more, like the markets that I'm moving. It it allows me to, to, to understand and logically resonate with why we're moving certain things or why we're betting certain things. I like to know those kinds of things. So I think it's always important to know to to be able to know as much as you possibly can because it can only help you. Is there any layer of like subjectivity to what you do? So for example, um, you following the NBA, maybe losing a bunch on a certain team and then getting to a point where you're like, no, like I want nothing to do with this team anymore. They're blacklisted type of thing or injury news breaks in that game. And you're like, I'm staying away from this type of thing. Or, or is it more of a like robotic approach now? I would say. 
I mean, we always try to keep things as non-robotic as possible because every situation is unique. Um, for example, me and my partner hate betting on any games with the 76ers because we feel like there, <laughs> there is some kind of a scheme going on over there. Like Joel Embiid is in one minute and the next thing you know, he's out. And then Ben Simmons, who wasn't supposed to play, is in. And then both of them are scratched right before the game starts. So, I mean, it's important to be cognizant of these things, right? You have to be aware. I mean, you, you have to think in logic. You can't just be robotic about situations because these kinds of things these kinds of um, uh, situations can repeat themselves. Um, how markets move to certain teams is also another important thing to know. Is it just helps you set a foundation on what you as a basis to know and anticipate which way a market is not for sure going to move, but most likely to move. And I think those that that is how I bet into the market. I like to set ranges and 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 have like a memory in my mind of how certain teams have been hit. And, and what the market in, in, as a consensus is, is usually playing on certain sides or certain teams, like totals on teams at certain ranges, it helps me stay ahead of the curve. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I have one more question. Um, again, I'm very fascinated by, um, I guess, the spaces that I don't deal with just in general, but I wanted to talk a bit about leaks and how you catch a leak, how you prevent a leak, um, and what you do in some situations. So for those that don't know, obviously, um, when you're working with partners and you're betting into their accounts, they're obviously going to be able to have access to the, the wagers that you're placing. Uh, and there are cases where somebody might have like what's called a plant account with you specifically so that they could see what you're betting on and they can go and bet it elsewhere. And sometimes that moves the screen. Sometimes it's very apparent that there's a leak. Sometimes there's uh, it's not. Um, I, I won't name a name, but I, I know someone who's steam chaser through and through who, if he uh, spots someone that's leaking plays or suspects someone that's leaking plays, he is going to intentionally give them bad plays. And I'm sure that this happens in the industry. Uh, I'm just wondering if you've ever dealt with uh, situations like that where you've you've noticed a, a big leak, Harut, and, and what you do in those situations. I mean, it does happen, right? When you have... A a lot of accounts you it becomes a, a a risk management tool for your business to be able to keep up with these things and see if there is any information that's being compromised um otherwise you know one one account out of the many that you have can just be ruining the entire market for you and that's something that has to be looked at especially especially because i'm working with other people who want i, I value them you know telling me hey we can't let this information leak or th this can't happen i have to protect the information and, and keep the integrity of our business and make sure that we're doing what we can um, to preserve the market for the guys who are asking us to do so so you know i bet from both sides right like if i see a leak i'm like looking at it and saying all right what do i see here what, what is the market telling me here or what are they trying to do um and you know sometimes you can't really pinpoint it like stuff stuff that moves are, are fakes stuff that don't stuff sometimes it's the opposite they're not fakes and it it, it takes you know, even experience sometimes can't really pinpoint that. I'm not going to tell you that experience can pinpoint that. It might get, it might give you a better understanding. If you see a situation repeat itself over and over again, you might be able to tell what is a fake or, or what's a leak that's on an actual play. Um, we just do our best to try to, to try to do what we can and make sure information staying intact. Okay. Another piece of technology here. 
you mentioned, so we hear a lot about betting with bots, not like people say, hand, these are hand bet accounts. These are accounts I got a hand bet. So hand bets, obviously pretty, pretty clear. You get the info. You're going to just go ahead, enter the bet the old fashioned way, you know, enter your bet amount, click accept, place bet. There you go. Um, with a bot, it's obviously a little bit different. So can you talk a little bit about the technology you have? And again, if you don't want to give away anything that's proprietary, feel free to decline to answer. Um, but how does it work for you? How are you able to do that in a more efficient way using technology? I mean, the best thing I can say that in this business, leverage is important. I think, you know, you know whether, whether it's getting help through technology or help with, you know, bringing each other up with partners like a mover and a originator working together, um, that's leverage. You know, we're helping uh, each other by using our strengths and um, doing what we can in the market to bring value to each other. And, and bots and technology work the same way. They're, no, they're another form of leverage. You know, technology helps us automate things um, and, and make the process more seamless and easy. You know, we're, we're in a, in a day and age now where technology and automation is probably one of the most, um, valuable leverages we can, we can have. Um, so I think that the industry in a whole and every industry is headed that way. You know, bot betting has, is probably, um, you know, been around for a while now, but it's more prevalent now, um, given the circumstances of, of how our, our, um, our future is headed in. When you start in the industry, there's probably not this knowledge of, of bot betting, or maybe there's this knowledge, but like not, um, like, like what I'm trying to get at is you have a limited amount of knowledge when you enter an industry and you're constantly learning, right? And for someone to hear something about bot betting, as an example, someone who's listening to this podcast who has like, you know, 12 different PPH accounts, dozens or whatever, and says, you know, uh, I didn't know bot betting existed or, or, or they start to think in their heads, like, this is cool. How, how could I even find a bot? Like you must've approached or, or reached that point at some point, like for you, was it somebody approaching you and saying, this is how we can help better your business? Was it you seeking out information? Was it you learning through, you know, social media? How do you basically educate yourself further and, and grow your business on stuff that's kind of an unknown at first? Yeah. You know, as you start facing, um, issues in terms of like where your business is and where you want to be, you, you start to try to ask yourselves in what way can I scale? Um, so we, we're always trying to improve every day. So, you know, networking a lot with other people and, and, and talking with other people in the space, you meet different kinds of people who can, who can help you in different ways. Um, and it's been a natural progression for us. You know, I never thought that we would, be where we're at right now and when we because of where we when we first started we have we were very like started from from the ground up so it it's kind of cool to look back and say hey we're here now but it, it it's taken um you know it's been a natural progression to get to where we are now and we've just met people along the way and we're like hey this person can help us here they're bringing value and you just you sort of acquire it through the years by meeting different people uh, record keeping and figure tracking. Everybody does some sort of accounting, I guess, regularly. Do you keep up with it on a day to day? Like I know some people who just wait to get to the end of the week and figure out what they're owed or, or what they owe. And that's it. Cause they don't want to deal with the daily stresses of figuring up what they were up or down. 
Um, I know some people who just have like their own accountant that works with them, who just handles all of the, the, you know, the profit margins for that exact reason. Um, what's, I guess, what's your approach to that? Like for me on a personal level, um, I I'm updating every day, but I would probably live another 10 years or so if I wasn't, because like you have that bad night where you start to question everything the next day where you're like, Oh, like, do I continue down the same path or do I have to, you know, re-explore this? So I'm just curious if, um, if you're looking at your figures on a daily basis and then if so, do you ever get to the point where you have like that, a, a, a small bad run and then start to like reevaluate life basically? We try to keep up with it as much as we possibly can. I, I mean, monitoring accounts and monitoring where we're at with different sports or what we bet is always important. Um, I think just kind of like leaving them and letting them sit for a week and then just seeing where you're at. I don't really like that approach. I kind of like to th look at things on, on a case-by-case -case basis. So if there's something that I want to look at, even if it's within that day, I'll look at it. Um, just having that information available is valuable. So we're always inputting things on a daily basis. Everything is updated in our sheets in terms of what we're playing or what positions we're betting or inputted in our sheet like immediately in real time. So it allows us to see everything that we want to see if we do want to look into it. Um, and just having so many accounts, it's important to keep up with it on a daily basis because you also have to manage your risks there. You know, how much has X, Y, or Z account been up this week? And and just looking at these things and making sure you're managing your risk properly is also important. I think we can all say that, you know, when you're betting long enough, you'll eventually reach certain points in your betting career where things are not, you know, going so well. You're maybe on a bad downstretch. And you just like to, you know, reevaluate things. I think even if you're not doing anything wrong and you're doing everything the correct way, just like you always have been, and you're just getting different results, it's still a good practice um, to look at those situations and evaluate it and see how you can improve because it's just the app, just applying yourself to, to think in those situations and see how you can improve just would say a lot about you and, and a lot about, you know, your your interest to always, always do what you can to make it as best as it can be. Um, I have to ask you about the McLaren because <laughs> it came up last week in our, uh, in our interview with abnormally distributed where he kind of took like a, a shot, I guess you would say at, at the McLaren picture. So I don't think it was you. I think it was your, your partner, uh, at Armenian better that posted it, I believe on yeah. Twitter, but it's essentially like a, we made it type of of post with uh, a picture of of a McLaren, which um, is that your McLaren? Is that his? Are you guys? Did you guys like split the cost of that? I'm just interested. And then like kind of like what the motivation was for posting it, because I'm sure there's like a lot of people that are like, okay, that's cool. I'm gonna like this. And then there's a lot of people that are like, like, come on, really? You're put you're posting pictures of McLaren. So just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Drew and I bought the bought the McLaren um, together. Um, it was one of those decisions where we're like, been like, we've been working really hard. And, you know, when you, when you do the, the betting thing for as long as we have, um, a lot of people that we know personally as friends and family know how hard we work and how very little we reward ourselves. Um, I personally put a lot back into my family and, and helping my family get to where we want to be. I just recently got married and, 
put my family in a house and it just it, it sits well with me to know I'm putting my family first before myself. So it reached a point where where we're like, you know, it, it does become tough. You know, you're 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 doing this thing on a daily basis over and over again and you're and you're running this like no other business. And you know, it just you, you do have I feel like you do have to reward yourself with something occasionally to to help you to help you stay, you know, motivated and, and keep you in it. And I, I personally don't think that um, it's one of those. I don't want people to get the wrong image. Like oh, we're po- like we posted this pic because we're like trying to flex on people or whatever it is. It might have come off that way. I, I don't know to some people, but it's just we, we bought it purely for enjoyment, not to show anything off. I, I you know, I've always wanted to drive a nice car. Um, I still love my Tesla more than the McLaren, but it's one of those things where we just honestly got it just for enjoyment. I, I think that rewarding ourselves because of all of our hard work is important so we can keep moving forward and stay motivated and, and keep providing value to our, our partners. I love that. I, I actually love that because, I mean, I talk with Rob about this all the time. Life is like, it's too short to just not enjoy some stuff at least, right? And like you said, you're working. Rob mentioned people working 16 hours a day staring at a screen. You're obviously doing a a bunch of stuff. But every single day if you work, uh, if you're making money, where does that go? You know what I mean? Like Like the money itself doesn't make you happy. It's the journey of what, like how to get there and what you're doing. So to spend it and say, you know what? fuck it, we're going to buy a McLaren this month because we had a good month and whatever. Like now, you know what I mean? Like obviously it's a, it's a slippery slope because as you keep buying more stuff and it goes up the ladder, but I respect it. I love it. I'm glad you guys were doing well uh, enough to purchase it. And um, I mean, power to you and I have nothing wrong with you posting it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the posting stuff, it it doesn't bother me at all. Like, listen, we live in a day and age where I think anything that somebody posts to a to a social uh, account in general, like almost anything can be interpreted one way or another, right? And I learned this. I have like a fairly large following on Twitter from when I first started working in media. And it used to bother me in the sense that like no matter what I posted, it was, it, it was either really heavily scrutinized or, um, you know, people would like it in general. And there's like, no real medium in between. Uh, I, I I have zero issues with it. I only bring it up just because it became like a a topic of conversation in the in the betting community. But I, I'm I'm glad to see that you're doing well and you guys are enjoying life because I I do think that there is, yeah I I, I like what you you said there kind of really hit home with me. You can spend a lot of time working on things. Like I I remember a couple years ago I didn't take a day off. I was at my computer for eight hours a day constantly and you you don't reward yourself with anything and then last year i i kind of just made it a personal goal of mine to like i'm gonna take up golf and i'm gonna play as much as i possibly can because like life is short and um at some point you gotta you know you, you gotta make yourself happy um in some in some sense so yeah i mean that's uh no no personal issues just in case it came across that way i just want to make that clear in today's day, it's, you have all these Instagram models and personalities posting fake stuff too, like you fake private jet, fake this, trying to like boost up a following and stuff. So, I mean, if you bought it and it's yours, then you know what I mean? Post it. People are always going to hate. If you want to, you want to. If you want to be more low-key, be more low-key. Nothing wrong with that. 
well, this is a car. It, it's a it's fancy car that you're gonna drive. Like this isn't like Vegas Dave post, you know, uh, purchasing a courtside seat at the Lakers game so that he can put his man purse down on it, right? Like <laughs> that to me is like a next level. I, and I know I'm judging at this point now, but like that's just like come on type of stuff. But um, also, all right, this is only a McLaren. We're, we're we can't be talking this up. I would <laughs> I would make a wager right now that this is probably not even the best car you're ever going to own in your life. So we're it's just the best car you own right now. It's it's not even going to be that for a while. Um, yeah, Rob, you want to ask the final question? I I did. So uh, I, yeah. I'll just shoot right into it. So, Harut, if you could go back and and talk to a version of yourself from five years ago, uh, knowing what you know now, what what's one piece of advice that you would give to yourself from five years ago? Um, buy Bitcoin really early, like two thousand twelve. <laughs> 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 no, but honestly, I mean, I I I um, learned that. I don't know it all. When I was young, I I thought I knew it all. I I thought that I can do things on my own. Um, do things the way I thought were the correct way. And that's far from the truth because I've learned a lot more from other people than I knew myself. And I think it's always going to be that way. Um, it's just the best universal advice I can give to everybody. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, 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 I'm an, I like to be nice to, to everybody I meet. I'm, I'm, I'm not an asshole. I, I, I respect everybody equally. Even on the Twitter space, I try to be as nice as possible because i think that you know treating people the right way is is important i'm one of those kinds of guys who i don't really change who i am or what i do based on what you know people see me as uh i guess when i was younger i i cared about that more um but now i know if i'm if i'm being ethical and and i'm being and and i'm being a nice person to people if people want to hate me for that they can hate me for that um i if I know I'm not doing anything wrong, then there's no reason to not continue to to be who I am and 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 do what I can to help other people. All right, thanks Harut for joining us. For those um, on Twitter, you can follow him at Bet Like Harut H A R O U T, or his partner Drew at Armenian Better as well. Um, I think this was interesting. I still, I know your craft is a a little bit different than what I. Um, thought it was going in so it gives me a little bit of a new perspective and i guess i did talk about on the top how you have your originators and your steam chasers and i think that there's a lot of people that probably lie somewhere in between and you sound like someone that lies somewhere in between so um i don't think it's as simple as just you know putting people in buckets and saying oh this is what you do this is what you do i think there's a lot more to it that happens in the background that people don't really understand and we're very quick to call one another out on uh, specific processes without knowing. And I probably would have had some sort of judgment going into this, which has been, uh, I probably leave this interview thinking about you a little bit differently if I'm being honest, Harut. So uh, appreciate your perspective and uh, wish you the best of luck going forwards.